We'll tell you that next Sunday evening is the first Sunday of the month and will be our question and answers. And I have about five or six more questions that are in my pool that I'll be trying to answer several of these next Sunday evening. But I would remind you that if you do have questions that you would like to have answered, uh, I would like advance notice of them instead of you just asking them off the cuff. But uh, if you have a question about some practical application of God's Word, a passage of Scripture, or how it should be interpreted, or something of that nature, or maybe a question of what the Bible teaches on a particular subject, uh, I'll be more than glad to try to address those. You can just write it on the back of one of the visitor's cards and hand it to me, and I'll stick it in my pocket, and we'll make sure we get it into the list of those things to be discussed. What a great passage. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There's a way that seems right. I want to begin by discussing the idea of making decisions. Decision making is really challenging for several reasons. For instance, when we find ourselves being faced with challenges in life and decisions to be made, there are often multiple choices from which you and I can choose. It's not as if most of the time it's either true or false or black or white or yes or no. We may have presented in front of us four, five, six choices. And I will tell you that when you are presented with a number of choices, sometimes several of the choices may appear initially to be good choices. I know when Brother Stan Stevenson writes the test for the Bible Bowl and it comes to the multiple choice, he usually will make one of the answers in the multiple choice obviously wrong. And then he'll make two or three of them sound believable. And so then you're taking the test and you're trying to say, well, is it this one or that one? And you really have to begin to study to make sure that you know the correct answer. And when you and I find ourselves in life, sometimes we're confronted, is this the right choice or is that one the right choice as we make our decisions? But then there's another problem. Often there are those people who have an ulterior motive who are trying to influence our decisions. Let me just give you a real easy illustration of that. When Paul was writing the book of Galatians, there were people who were trying to persuade Christians to go back and live under the Old Testament. We often call them the Judaizing teachers. When you get to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 17, he said, They zealously court you, but for no good, that they may exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. In other words, they're courting you, they're trying to get you to decide in one direction, why? Because they want you to be zealous for them. I think of the politics that's going on right now. And you have a number of people, and you know all of you are going to have a smile on your faces. This politician will tell you he's so much better than that politician who will tell you he's better than the other politician, and it becomes an endless game. And you wonder if there's anyone whom you can believe. Well, let me ask you a question. Are there any biblical principles that you and I can use that will help us to make correct decisions? 
Not just choose anything, not choose something that appears to be right, but choose something that is right. Well, here's three things we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about the basis for making correct decisions. What is the criteria that I use to try to evaluate things? There are several things that are used, and we're going to explore some of those. Number two, I want to use some examples of some deceptive decisions. Really, in fact, we're just going to use two that are real current in the Lord's church today. And then number three, we want to talk about learning to choose correctly. And I hope this lesson will be practical, it will be beneficial, so that as you are sitting down and you're trying to weigh a decision, what you're going to do about a particular matter, or as we as a congregation of the Lord's people are trying to decide the right direction that we must follow, that we are always able to use biblical principles in doing so. So let's begin, first of all, about making decisions and the basis for them. What influences your decisions? I don't think some people realize that everybody has a basis for their decisions. And many people use perhaps the most obvious, and that is popular opinion. That's the way the majority of the people feel about something. For instance, they may not necessarily always go by the polls, but they may ask a majority of their friends, well, what would you do if you were in my situation? Well, I would do this. They ask another one, another friend says, well, I'd do that too. And they would say, okay, well, if everybody says that's the way it ought to be, then I guess that's what I ought to do. Friday when I was driving, or Thursday when I was driving to Nashville, I was listening to talk radio, and the discussion was whether or not a person would waste their vote this Tuesday. And a person called in and he said, if you don't vote for this candidate, you are wasting your vote. And the commentator said, no, you're not. Your vote expresses your views. And if that expresses your views, then you've not wasted your vote. That betrays an idea that says whatever is the most popular is right. And that's not always the case. I want you to go with me to the book of Exodus, to chapter 23 and verse 2. You know, right after Moses presents the law, the Ten Commandments, then he begins a series of specific, what we would call matters of regulation, ordinances that God expected to be followed. And here's the first one. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil nor shall you testify in a dispute to, to, so as to turn aside many to pervert justice. In other words, you don't follow the majority. You don't follow them to do evil. In fact, if that's the case, what about matters of morality today? I hear the news media say, well, the, it was at one time the majority was against abortion. Now everybody is for abortion, or at least a, a majority is for it. So that must make it right. Or there was a time when gambling was considered to be such a vice, and yet now if you ask people, is gambling okay? Yes, gambling's okay. You can play the lottery. You can do all those things. You see, people begin to make their decisions on the basis of how the majority feels. Notice the second part of that verse. Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside many to pervert justice. You shouldn't be trying to influence others 
to go down a wrong pathway as well. In Job 31, verse 34, he said, Because I feared the multitude and dreaded the contempt of families. If I were to ask you, sometimes when you're faced with a decision, do the peers that you have influence your decision? And I would dare say most of us say, yes, they do. Oh, everybody around me is, is doing it. That's Well, wasn't that what we told our children don't do? If everybody's sticking their head in an oven, will you stick your head in an oven? If everybody's jumping off the cliff, will you jump off the cliff? Do you see the folly of that? There's a good example of a, this kind of majority rule in the making of decisions. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul and Barnabas had been going among the churches of Galatia. They, they had been preaching there and you have Paul and Barnabas coming back to Antioch. And Paul puts it like this beginning with verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when those came or they came, he withdrew himself and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Oh, if everybody says, you better not eat with those Gentiles, then Peter didn't eat with them. Barnabas didn't eat with them. Don't tell me that majority influences, popular opinion doesn't affect a lot of people's decision-making. But then there's some people who make their decisions on the basis of what the educated say or what the wise say or the religious authorities. You see, they listen to them and they say, well, you know, they must be a lot smarter than me. And because they're smarter than me, I'm, I'm just going to do what they tell me to do. They'd say, we'll not follow the masses. We won't follow what everybody else, but we'll follow the wise. But let me point out to you that many times the wise are self-appointed wise. They're those who will tell you how brilliant they are when in reality they're not that brilliant. When Paul was writing the Romans, he was trying to explain people had, who had refused to have God in their knowledge and that what God had manifested to them, they had denied it and they were no longer following. And he says in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The Bible warns against following these kind of people. You see, Paul, as he was going among many of these Gentile churches, was dealing with people who had this Greek and Roman background. And their philosophers were telling them, oh, to be wise is this and that. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. 
It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ and Him crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I think I begin to appreciate now what Paul is saying. Should I go to the educated? Should I go to those people today who have letters after their name and say, well, they're the ones who know everything. They will tell me how to raise my children. They will tell me how I ought to worship God. They will tell me what the Bible says. You see, the problem is many times these are not the truly wise people. In fact, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit. In Jesus' day, those who were the religious elite, those who were the religious authorities were the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he makes a very profound observation in chapter 15 and verse 14 of Matthew. He said, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. Before I follow someone, before I let them influence my decision, I need to make sure I know where they're going and what wisdom they have. And is it real wisdom? The third basis that some people use for making decision is their conscience. And the conscience is very important because it provides for us that compass within us, but it is not completely reliable. And that's a problem because if I depend upon something and something that I have is not reliable, and if I give you a compass... And I say, well, this compass works about 50% of the time. And I'm going to go drop you off in the middle of the woods and hope you can find your way out. You may find your way out and you may not. You have to realize that the conscience can be mistaken. Listen to Acts 21 verse 9. Paul then looking earnestly at the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He said, right up until now, I've never violated my conscience. I did what I was supposed to do. But when he goes on in chapter 26 and verse 9, he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus the Nazareth. In other words, I believe that's what I was supposed to do. If you depend upon your conscience and your conscience is incorrectly informed, you'll be doing the wrong thing rather than the right thing. Solomon observed in Proverbs 30, verse 12, there's a generation that's pure in their own eyes, yet it's not washed from their filthiness. I think that describes our generation today. There's a generation that if you ask them, have you done wrong? No, no, I've not done wrong. I'm doing what's right. Not washed from their filthiness. Problem is, you leave man by himself to direct his own self, and what will he do? He'll go astray. Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know the way of man. It is not a man who walks to direct his own steps. 
or Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I can tell you what they were doing was not right in God's eyes. And the problem is even for people who have correct knowledge, they know the difference between right and wrong. You can sear that conscience to the point where a person no longer is able to make rational, correct decisions. Paul says, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Or you can make your decisions on the basis of the revealed will of God. It is the only infallible source. You see, if I depend upon popular opinion, sometimes popular opinion may be correct. A lot of times it may not be correct. If I depended upon the educated people, the, the right, you know, the people who are, you know, with the degrees and the understanding, yes, they may be right, but they also may be wrong. If I depend upon my conscience, I may choose the right thing, I may get lucky, or I may be wrong. You can't depend upon it, but you can always depend upon God's Word to be infallible. The reason why is God knows more than any of us will ever know. Isaiah put it like this in chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We serve a God who knows it all knows every situation in life. And God has revealed that through His Word. He's presented it to man and says, here it is. Micah 6 and verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. Well, how did He show it to us? Through His Word. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Not partially, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which brings me to some examples of some deceptive decisions. Now I'm just going to use two that are very current in our world today. And this is something that I have even read this past week about our pursuit of a more meaningful worship. And let me ask you the question, do you want worship to be more meaningful? That sounds reasonable. That sounds desirable. Someone says, yes, I want, when I go to services, I want to walk out feeling like I am just all enthused. Let me ask you a question. And this is, this is a sincere one to try to help guide us to think about decision making. Whom is worship for? Whom is worship for? Is it for me? Or is it for God? Now I'm not asking you do I derive a benefit from it. I'm asking you for whom is it? Did God design worship services 
to be about us or did he design worship services to be about giving him praise and honor and glory? When you go to the book of Zechariah, they were asking the question, why did God not really bless them when they fasted? And in their minds, they had this idea, Lord, I fast, then you bless. I fast, then you bless. And so God asked the question in return, say to all the people of the land and to the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, During those 70 years, did you really fast for me? And then it's repeated again. For me? When you eat and you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And God is saying to them people, when you were going through that fast, were you fasting because you were humbling your souls to give me the honor and the glory? Or were you fasting because you were so sad because you were suffering? Who was it really for? And then he said, now when you eat and you drink, who are you eating and drinking for? Are you eating and drinking to give me glory and honor for the fact that I'm blessing you? Are you looking at it for yourselves? When we sing our songs, is it our adoration of God? When we pray our prayers, is it for the adoration of God? I suggest to you that when you start asking the question about a more meaningful worship, more meaningful for whom? Is it more meaningful that we pray and we praise God because of who He is? Maybe we need to spend a little more time in the book of Psalms and see the the heart of David as he pours out his praise and devotion to the Lord. And you say, well, what difference would that make? Oh, it makes a lot of difference as people begin to decide, okay, now what can we do in our services that pleases me? Rather, what has God told me that He wants that pleases Him? Second matter, church growth. And again, I ask the question, who would not want the church to grow? And do you know, every time you look at the numbers, and we we all look at the numbers to some degree. Oh, I think we have more here than what was on the board. What if we could double that number? What if we could triple that number? Would we not want to? Why wouldn't we want to? Because every one means there's another soul in God's kingdom. But you see, when we focus and we start making our decisions based on, oh, we've got to grow, we've got to grow, we've got to see this potential growth, then we start taking denominational ideas, their practices, and one of the terms that's being battered about is, are we marketing the church? Are we treating the church just, for instance, like we were trying to sell Pepsi-Cola or we were trying to sell a McDonald's hamburger or something else like that where we give people what they want to draw them in? And then your decisions then are no longer based upon are we making disciples of the Lord that He told us to do in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20 or are we making disciples of the flesh? Well, let's move to the third part 
learning to choose correctly. The first thing to realize is there is a right way. There is a right way. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. When he says except, there are no exceptions. That means I cannot go to the Father through Muhammad. I cannot go to the Father through Joseph Smith. I cannot go to the Father through any man. Only one way, but there's a right way. Second Peter 2 and verse 15, They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam the son of Beor. The point is, is there's a right way. Some people choose to go another one. Or for Samuel 12, verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Samuel said, I'll pray for you folks. But he says, I'm not just going to pray for you. I'm also going to show you there's a good and a right way that you ought to follow. And then what I think is the crowning passage. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it. You see, the Lord said there's, a, there's two different ways that a man may go and the broad way evidently has a number of choices on it. But there's a right way and there is a wrong way. But I want to remind you of the passage that Brother Stanley read to us just a few minutes ago. And he says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You need to look at the consequences. Where does this decision lead? If I choose this one, where will it end? If I choose that one, where is it going to end? And if I'm learning to make right choices, I have to start looking and saying, where will this road lead me? Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now here's why. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You see what... Moses was able to do, he was able to say, now what if I stay a prince in Egypt? Oh, there's all kinds of pleasures that will be with it. But where will that lead me? Where will it end? On the other hand, if I choose to fellowship with and associate myself with the people of God and I choose to do what God would have me to do, where's that going to lead me? It's going to lead me to a reward in heaven. In Jeremiah 5, verse 31, you see, there were false prophets telling them everything was okay. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? You see that last statement, that question? What will you do in the end? 
We have people telling us, oh, don't worry about your family. You don't like the wife you got. Get rid of her and get you someone else. Oh, you don't like this? Well, do something. Where's that going to lead you? Not just here in this life, but where will it lead you eternally? Then learn to take God at His word. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I called heaven and earth as witness today against you. I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. Choose the right one. Learn to follow God's word. And I'm going to end with this, Psalm 119, before we go to our conclusion. David said, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. They're ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you have yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in the, to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. You see, the knowledge, the understanding, the ability and the direction by following God and his word. The truth is, God wants what's best for man and he has provided his word for man's benefit. The last verse I'm going to use is from Acts 2 in verse 40. And I will tell you that this is an important verse because here you have before you a number of people on the day of Pentecost. They've already said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's already stated, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. They've been told what they need to do. When I get to verse 40, he says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this generation. That's really where we want to leave it. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Learn to make decisions based upon God's word. Learn to choose the right thing and save yourself from this generation. If you need to become a Christian tonight by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing that faith and being baptized, we'd love for you to do that. But more importantly, God would love for you to do that. If you are a Christian who needs the prayers and the encouragement of this congregation, if you need in any way to respond, we encourage you to do that as we stand together and sing.